This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. While sitting in the second row of my childhood church, I sat eye level with the communion table. It was walnut stained and um, it was a wood grain of the furniture. Uh, It sat just below the pulpit and just in front of it. This is where the deacons laid the elements of the Lord's Supper before we would share them. There was a stack of shining silver plates that held in their possession some of the most precious elements of our faith, fragments of unleavened wafer bread and clear plastic cups containing grape juice, which represented the body and blood of Christ. Draped over these treasures was a crisply pleated, stark white tablecloth that shielded them from sight until it was time for us to share together in the meal. Carved in the frontispiece of that table were the words from Christ in Luke chapter 22, This do in remembrance of me. As I sat there, always intrigued by that table, it was as if there was an ongoing invitation to come and feast on the goodness of Christ. I loved the Sundays we would share the Lord's table. The meal that was concealed by that cloth is known by many names. Each one of them seeks to communicate something of its meaning. It's called the Lord's Supper, which gets its name from the Last Supper that Jesus ate with his disciples. In Scripture, it's referred to as the breaking of bread. Some refer to it as a sacrament, which tries to articulate the holiness of the meal. Other traditions call it the Eucharist, which comes from this Greek term meaning Thanksgiving, we often refer to it as an ordinance because it was ordained by Christ himself, instituted by Christ himself. But perhaps my favorite word to describe this meal is the word communion. Don't you love that word? I love how it carries the sense of relationship with Christ, fellowship with Christ, while observing this supper with hearts full of thanksgiving while gathered together in the presence of the Lord. Throughout church history, the frequency of how often the Lord's Supper has been celebrated has ebbed and flowed. It's fluctuated. At some periods, it was only observed once a year for most Christians. But most of the time, it's been either seen uh, quarterly, monthly, or weekly in the rhythms of local churches. It's been our practice to celebrate communion the first Sunday of each month, throughout the entire month of Advent, and then, as I like to say, and as requested. What that means is, if this text just can't be preached without us sharing in communion, we should do it on those Sundays as well. And so, um, I, I estimate we've taken communion together over 50 times now in our three and a half years together, and Lord willing, we will continue to do so for years to come. So... Over these next two weeks, I want us to stop and think together about the two ordinances that Jesus gave to the church. 
the Lord's Supper today, and next week as we celebrate outdoors, Lord willing, baptism. So to get us thinking in the right direction, let me ask you, what role does the Lord's Supper play in your faith? What role does the Lord's Supper play in your faith? My prayer is that as a church, we would think biblically about the Lord's Supper so that each month when we come to the Lord's table, we would see it as this ongoing invitation, this remembrance, this experience of feasting together on the goodness of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26 is our text today. It's often known as the words of institution because in them Jesus institutes this practice of the Lord's Supper. The passage contains a description of the common liturgy that is still rehearsed today by the people of God. What we have here in the Lord's Supper is a retelling of the story of God's redemption provided through the completed work of Christ. And in this meal... We remember and proclaim who Christ is and what he has done to win for us so great a salvation. We'll organize our text around three headings, each calling Christians to specific responses to this passage. First, observe the ordinance of Christ. Second, remember the love of Christ. And third, proclaim the gospel of Christ. So there's where we're headed. Let me invite you to stand once more as we read together. A very familiar passage to us, one that we come to at least once a month. And so let's pray that as we do, the Lord would give us open eyes, open ears as we hear from him. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? So the first call of the text before us is to observe this ordinance of Christ. Verse 26. We must first realize That the Lord's Supper is not a divine suggestion, but a command from God meant to be obeyed. And like all of God's commands, it was not meant to be a burden to us, but a means of grace. A banquet of joy and an act of worship. The Lord's Supper is itself a service of worship. One of my favorite Puritans, Jeremiah Burroughs, once said, In the matter of worship, God stands upon little things. There is not one small thing in the worship of God. So, in these small and even common elements of bread and wine stand an enormous reality for you and me as to who God is 
and what God has done. In verse 23, Paul explains to the Christians in Corinth that the Lord's Supper was not something that originated with him, but comes from the Lord Jesus himself. The practice of communion began with Jesus, Paul writes, on the night he was betrayed. What a haunting reminder that is. And from that night, this tradition was passed down from Christ, first to his disciples, then from Christian to Christian, church to church, until this very day. It seems almost pointless to point this out, but guys, we did not come up with the practice of the Lord's Supper or any of our worship practices for that matter. We believe in the principle that everything we do together must be found in Scripture, comes from Scripture, and it's been handed down to us. And of course, the Lord's Supper is an essential element of our worship. The first time we gathered on September the 9th, 2018, we constituted as a church. We became a church. The way that Baptists have long done that is by two things. Uh, The reading together of a church covenant, which we did, if, you, if you're new to us, you can find the words to that on our website. It's a wonderful con- just like agreement that we have of how we're going to live together as disciples of Jesus. And then we followed that, as, as the Christians have long done, by sharing together the Lord's Supper. And in doing those two acts, we became the Trails Church. And so we were handed down this tradition. We didn't come up with it, but we continue to observe communion as a, a principle of our worship. So no, this didn't start with Paul. He wants us to make sure we know that. This started with Christ. Uh, Three of the four Gospels mention the same details we find here. I read through them all side by side this week and found it really edifying. Uh, If you'd like to do the same, this passage is recorded also in Matthew 26, 26 to 29, Mark 14, 22 to 25, and Luke 22, 15 to 20. Okay, one of the ways that Christians have long described the Lord's Supper is as a sign and a seal. It's a sign that points to the death of Jesus Christ. The Baptist Faith and Message says that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience. It's a sign, a symbol that points to a greater reality. You'll remember from our study of Exodus last fall, when we were in chapter 13 and 14, the Lord gave to his people a meal as a sign that they would never forget how he had delivered them by his mighty hand and strength, how he had performed his work in saving them. This last supper being described right here was actually them celebrating the Passover meal that God gave back in Exodus. But here what Jesus does is baptize it, if you will, He's baptizing it in his name. He's reimagining, translating, interpreting these things they've done from long ago, but now showing them to a greater reality in him. The bread used at the Last Supper was a sign pointing to his body. The blood used, a cup that pointed to his blood that would be poured out for his people. These are signs pointing to the greater reality. And it is also a seal. The Westminster Confession of Faith refers to communion as a holy sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Um, The idea of this being a sign and a seal is not too difficult for us to understand. 
When Jamie and I stood and got married on that platform some 17 years ago, we uh, exchanged vows, and then as an uh, undying token of our unending love, I think that's the, the language that ministers use, we exchanged to one another rings. Now, those rings that we exchanged were not our love. They were signs that pointed to our love. I'm so thankful for that because about a year later, I was wrestling my brother in a pool in Florida, never to see that ring again. But it was just a sign. Our covenant, our union had been sealed with those vows. And and, and in a similar way, this is what these signs are. They're pointing to a greater reality. We've been signed by the blood of Christ, sealed by the work of Christ. So Christian, in the act of the Lord's Supper, you've been given this sign, the seal of the love of Christ, where he tells you who he is, your great redeemer. And he tells you who you are, his beloved, the receiver of his grace, the one that he's called chosen. Hmm. How good is that news? So the Lord's Supper, it is an act of worship. Yet, like every act of worship, it does not begin with us. It begins with Christ. And in the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, if you will, holds wide his arms as the host of this meal. And he is the very one that it points to. As we think about observing this ordinance, I'd like to give you a few other words that help fill in the blanks of um, how the church has long thought of communion. We'll see these come straight from the Bible. The first word is participation. As we think about observing this ordinance known as the Lord's Supper, it is a participation. This chapter repeats the phrase, come together five times to show the importance of not neglecting, gathering together as is the habit of some, but gathering together, following Jesus together. And in our unity, giving visible expression to this shared experience of salvation and the unity that we have in Christ. There is no greater shared experience than to look over and sing with someone, share communion with someone who you've been tethered, you've been shared in this love of Christ. Second, examination. As we approach the Lord's table... We also want to examine ourselves. Let your eyes fall down to verse 28 on this same page where Paul writes, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What kind of examination is he calling for here? Well, it's the kind that we look, observe our lives. We evaluate our thoughts and words and deeds to see if they are in alignment with the teaching of Holy Scripture. And once we see our great need there, that leads us to the third word, confession. So as we evaluate our lives and where we have missed the mark of God's glory, for things we have done and left undone, we move to confession of our sin and asking for the mercy of Christ to cover us. The final word I'd like to offer you here is consecration. Ultimately, this sacrament that is set apart from other meals is meant to set us apart from the world as God's holy people, empowering us to live holy lives. And so let us observe 
the ordinance of Christ by participation, evaluation, confession, and consecration. I love how Charles Spurgeon sings of these signs. He says, amidst us our beloved stands and bids us view his pierced hands, points to the wounded feet inside, blessed emblems of the crucified. Let us observe the ordinance of Christ. The second call of our passage is to remember the love of Christ. Verses 24 and 25. That word remembrance is carved in many communion tables because it gets to the very heart of this ordinance. Remembrance is the act of calling to mind and turning over in our thoughts the love of Christ, but not in some abstract idea, but demonstrated for us upon the cross. As the beloved apostle John wrote in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. You see, remembrance is more than just mentally recalling facts. It's also emotionally loving what we know and being spiritually nourished by the gospel of Christ. All of those things are in view with this word, remember. Remember. So what's happening here? Verse 24, 25. Jesus gives thanks to the Father for the provision of this meal and probably for many other things going on in that room. He breaks the bread and passes it around the dark-lit room to his disciples who have no idea what they're on the brink of in the next 48 hours. And he says to them, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, before we revel in those words, let's be clear what they don't mean. Jesus in no way means that this bread literally becomes his body or this wine literally becomes his blood. Um, that's nowhere in Scripture. That is developed between the 3rd and 5th century. There's a long historical lesson I would love to share with you, but for the sake of children, I'll leave it out right now. If you'd like to buy me coffee, we can rehearse um, all of that. Kids, my kids too, you're included. I'd love to share that, you, that with you. No takers. <laughs> so between the 3rd and 5th centuries, the doctrine of transubstantiation was developed that teaches either when the priest blesses those things or perhaps when, when a person ingests them that they somehow magically turn into the body and blood of Christ. That's nowhere in Scripture. And, and as Protestants, as Baptists, we also completely deny that. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that, so that's a false doctrine. But we want to keep looking to the Bible, not to any tradition of man, to help build our understanding of what this means. So that's what it doesn't mean, but what does it mean? Well, primarily what Jesus is doing is, is interpreting the bread and the cup showing that these are the signs of the new covenant. The covenant that God had made back in Exodus 13 and 14 is now being fulfilled in the body and in the blood of Jesus. Um, I love how Leon Morris explains this. He says the idea of covenant dominates the Old Testament. The people entered into a covenant with the Lord. They were God's people, but they broke the covenant consistently. 
and Jeremiah. This is like the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah looks for the new covenant based on forgiveness of sins and with the law of God written on the hearts of the people. So that's what was promised, even under the old covenant, of what was to come. And now Jesus is saying that the shedding of his blood is the means of the new covenant. It provides forgiveness of sins. It opens the way for the activity of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. Jesus' blood, Jesus' completed work is the sign and seal of the new covenant made possible through him and through him alone. Now, as we reach this point, I want you to circle your thoughts around this phrase, which is for you. Louis Burkhoff points out that the words of institution broken for you and shed for many point to the fact that the death of Christ is a sacrificial one. It's for the benefit of, and circle this in your thoughts, even in the place of his people. So Jesus died in your place. Who deserved the punishment of sin? We did. Who dies in the stead of ruined sinners? Christ. And here we find the driving reason why Jesus went to such great lengths in this glorious condescension from, remember how we sang in the 90s? From the heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay, from the cross to the grave. We're stopping right there today. Jesus died, Christian brother and sister, for you as your substitute. Paul gets at this in 1 Corinthians 5.21 where he writes, he made him, that's God made Jesus, he made him who knew no sin. That's him upholding the sinlessness of Christ. God made Jesus sin to be sin. And the cross, this is this glorious thing that happened. Jesus was counted as sin for you, taking the full punishment of your sin. So that in Jesus dying on the cross, we could become something we never were, the righteousness of God. Unrighteous people credited with righteousness that was not our own. Theologians call this alien righteousness. It's not righteousness from within us. It comes from him. It's attributed to us. Who does all the work? Jesus. Who gets all the benefits of this salvation? <laughs> it's really good news. His body was broken for you. His blood was poured out for you. Every straying thought Every wandering lust, every prideful ambition, every wounding word, he died for it. And he forgave you. You've been forgiven in full, not in part, the whole. The thing you try to repress and forget about, that. The sum of your sin 
has been removed from you and thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. And he's never bringing it up again. It won't be counted against you. Not today or on the day you stand before him. Christ has paid it all. I love the words from this hymn in 1864. Here in figure represented, see the passion once again. Here, behold the Lamb most holy as for our redemption slain. Here the Savior body broken. Here the blood which Jesus shed. Now the offer of communion into lasting joy be led. The only way to lasting joy in communion with Christ is through his completed work. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Christ has done for us. The final call of this passage is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, verse 26. So the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the death of Christ. It is a reminder of the love of Christ Yet it is also a proclamation of the gospel of Christ. This supper is a silent sermon. This little liturgy is a wordless witness. It's an announcement of good news to those who have not yet tasted and seen the saving goodness of God. It says to all of you who sit in the church this morning but are not yet born again, come, taste and see. Forgiveness of sins is possible. Hear and see and know the goodness of God in Christ. Verse 26 says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now there's this phrase, speak the gospel and if necessary use words. That is a horrible statement. Except for here. It's the only way there's a little exception clause in the act of the gospel we are preaching without words. The rest of the time we've got to speak the words. In this final verse we find this remarkable truth that shapes the church to this day. The first aspect I'd like to point out is another you. Y-O-U. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. Who is it that's called to proclaim the Lord's death? The whole church Men, women, boys, and girls, if your life has been turned upside down by the gospel, if you were dead in sin, now you're alive in Christ, you've got to get in on this. Proclaiming. We observe communion together, and we do so publicly. We're not embarrassed of the death of Christ. We're not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So because we share communion, we share a testimony of being saved in and through the work of Jesus. And I want to just highlight the content of our message. What is it that we are proclaiming? Nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die a sinner's death on a cross. And that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So when we celebrate communion together, we are sharing, testifying, proclaiming the death of Christ as something of first importance to us. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that the Lord's Supper is only for Christians. If you've, 
If you've heard me say in the past that this is a meal only for Christians, and if you're not a believer, to not share this meal with us, you might have thought, well, that feels pretty exclusive. What a, what a terrible host. But I think it would make sense to us that you cannot remember, which is what we're called to do in this, what you have not first experienced. And you cannot proclaim what you do not yet know. And so there's a couple of things in view here. First, do you, you see how hypocritical it would be to proclaim the good news of Jesus for a person that had never tasted of Christ? Yet here's another reason. Look, look with me at verse 29 for a moment. Paul writes, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the act of eating the bread and drinking the cup, taking these outward signs without knowing the inward realities is not just an act of hypocrisy. It's an act that will be judged. Those are incredibly sobering words. So my dear non-Christian friend, Perhaps you've taken the Lord's Supper many times as you've attended church, but you know in your heart that you've not been born again. And you know that if you died today, you would die in your sin and spend an eternity in hell separated from God without a Savior. So in all humility and on the authority of God's Word, I ask you, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and I don't mean to be rude to you, but I ask you, don't take this meal. Let it pass by you as a reminder that you are not in Christ. Or perhaps you fooled your church friends or maybe even your spouse or your children. But you have not fooled God. And so today, I, I pray that this little act of just skipping communion might be the very thing to bring you to genuine saving faith in Jesus. That's a part of my wife Jamie's testimony of how she came to saving faith. Seeing each week, hearing the proclamation from this wordless witness of the bread and the cup and thinking, well, I'm, I'm not a part of that people yet that have believed in Christ. And praise the Lord, James, for his grace in your life. Maybe today is the day of your salvation. I also want to encourage you to look at Acts chapter 2. This would be great for all of us uh, at some point in the next week to look at Acts chapter 2. There's this wonderful picture of how people hear the good news. Peter preaches this remarkable sermon of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And the people are so cut to the heart. They say, well, what do we have to do to be saved? And he says, just believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then he calls them to be baptized. So they're baptized as an outward expression of the faith that they now claim. So they walked into Jerusalem that day, sinners in need of a Savior. They heard the good news of Jesus. 
They were then later baptized. And then by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see them regularly sharing in the communion meal, breaking bread together. The order there is important for us. Coming to faith in Christ, being baptized as, as your public profession of faith, identifying with the people of God, and then spending the rest of your days on earth rehearsing, remembering, observing the ordinance of Christ in communion. Okay, finally, let's see the continuation of this proclamation. We've looked at the content. How long is a church supposed to preach the death of Christ through the practice of communion? I love these last three words. Until he comes. <laughs> oh, what wonderful words those are. Pregnant with Filled with promise. Christ will return. Christ will return. And until the day of his return, the church is to share this meal as a public act of worship, as we offer, as we enjoy, as we remember and proclaim. And every time we break bread and drink the cup, we do also, we've looked back in remembrance, now we look forward to seeing all of Christ's promises fulfilled at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see right here, we just like, I mean, guys, you get one wafer and just this much juice. But on that day, we will feast in his presence. That day is coming. We didn't create this. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, passed down from generation to generation. And now we get this privilege of passing this down to the next generation. So my prayer today and for us as a church until the day he comes that we would think biblically about the Lord's Supper. Each time we would come to the Lord's table, we would see it as an ongoing invitation to come and feast on the goodness of Christ. And in this act of communion with Christ, that we would obey the command to observe the bread and the cup. In this ordinance that we would remember, and in this meal that we would proclaim the death of Christ. The death that brought us life until he comes. Let us remember and proclaim. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give thanks to you one who was broken so that we might be healed, the one who was pierced so that we might be forgiven, the one who was rejected that we might be accepted. So let us be faithful as we observe the Lord's Supper. Oh God, grant us remembering hearts. And let us be faithful to proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus and all of your goodness until the day you return. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 